Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. Good evening. If you don't mind, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Acts. Uh, we're going to continue working our way through the book and trying to get out of here some good application and some good understanding of how the early church worked. Uh, we're going to be talking about chapter 4, starting in verse 23 tonight. Uh, we covered a fairly large section last time, all of chapter 3, and about half of chapter 4, and this time we're going to be covering the last part of chapter 4 in the beginning of chapter 5, uh, just trying to keep the storyline together, uh, which is difficult sometimes because these sections are so large. Uh, we ended our last sermon with this slide, and since we're kind of continuing the story, I thought it would be good for us to continue the sermon slides from last time, and we, we talked about how the church and its character and the way that it functioned uh, whenever we as people, as God's church, as the kingdom of God are convicted about what, had, what God has done and we are convinced of God's truth and we are committed to it, uh, when we are clear about what our mission is and what we're supposed to be doing, we can't be stopped. And that's what we're really going to see and tonight's lesson is just how that plays out here in the early church and the way that they responded to Peter and John being arrested by the Jews. That's where our story picks up, right where they've been let out of jail. Uh, chapter 4, verse 23, after they were released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priest and the elders had said to them. And so they go back to their brethren back to the people that they know care most about them, and they basically uh, let them know everything that's been happening. We've been gone. Here's where we were. Here's what happened. Here's what was said. Here's how we were treated. Here's what we said in return. And the church would have had a, a choice to make. What do you do when the leader of your local flock is arrested for doing nothing more than healing and preaching truth. That's hard for us to relate to, isn't it? I mean, that, that's not something we worry about on a week-by-week -week basis. We, we don't have to wonder, is Adam going to show up to preach a sermon, or will he be in week. I, at least I don't think any of y'all wonder that because if you do it's probably for other reasons than when, the reason they had to worry about it. That, that's not a concern of ours. We're not worried that that three of our five elders are going to get arrested because they took a stand for the truth and because they were out there you know telling people what the Bible says about things. That, that I, I I can't imagine being in those shoes. And, and to be honest, I don't know that these people are in those shoes either. Because this is, according to the timeline in the book of Acts, the first time this is happening. 
I mean, they do know the potential because Jesus has already been arrested and tried unfairly and executed for being whom, who he is. But they've not seen this since the beginning of the church. The church began, it, it, according to description we have in Scripture, they were gaining favor with all the people. People were responding in droves to the message that the apostles were out there teaching. And all of a sudden, Peter and John, the leaders of the church, or at least some of them, are arrested. And they're not arrested because they've done something wrong. They're not arrested because they've started a riot. They're not arrested because of any uh, broken laws. They are arrested because the leaders just don't like what they're doing. How would you respond? I, I find this story amazing that you've got thousands of believers here. And I don't know how many were a part of this conversation that the apostles are having here, uh, reporting all the things that have happened to them. But their response is not to act in fear. It is not to get angry. It's not to, well, we'll show them. If they're going to treat us like that, then... You find they are convicted and convinced and committed and clear about their mission. And you see that most appropriately in the way, very directly, that they respond. The very, the very next verse. When they heard this, they raised their voices to God and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. Their immediate response is to pray. I mean, what you're going to find is it's not a prayer of vengeance and it's not a prayer of anger, but a prayer of praise. They're excited. Uh, they, they're not excited that Peter and John were arrested and persecution is coming. They were excited that God saw them through it. That, that as soon as they find out what has happened to Peter and John, they also find out God is carrying them through. That God is watching over them. And you see, as you read through this prayer, which, which I want to do, uh, keep reading with me. Verse 24, we just read. Verse 25, you said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the people plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. They prayed, and not a woe is me type of prayer, not a oh God please prevent this from happening kind of prayer. They prayed about God's plan, about how they were 
dedicated and convicted to doing things God's way. That God had said since the time of David that the Gentiles would reject the Lord and that that's all they're seeing here and that what they need is for God to help them be committed to and clear about God's work that they would speak with all boldness. I find it interesting that you don't read in here, protect us. You don't read in here, Lord, please don't let this happen. You don't read in here, Lord, keep those streets open wide so that we can go through with ease and comfort. Their prayer is, we don't care the circumstances, just give us courage. I find that amazing. I find it I mean, utterly astonishing because that is so contrary to the way we pray. We pray that God remove the hurdles, not that God let us run faster and jump higher. Do you see the difference? I mean, their prayer was not about avoidance. It was about their conviction and about their commitment and about God's will, and God's plan, and that God's glory be shown through all of it. That's what they prayed for. And look with me at the response. Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they assembled was shaken, and they all were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God. Look at that last word, boldly. They prayed that they would speak the word of God boldly and God stepped in immediately and said, done. Done. You speak boldly from now on. I find that amazing. And I find that just so convicting of me about whether I truly am standing up and doing things the way God would intend for me to do them or not. Because I'm one of those who does pray for avoidance. Or I pray that God prevent. Or I pray that God step in and make things easy. And that's not the promise God gave us. God has never promised ease to his people. And I think we need to be careful about praying for it. Maybe our prayer should be for boldness and clarity and conviction. And I tell you, it doesn't matter what the opposition was, what you're going to find in these next couple of sections through the book of Acts, that they faced all the opposition the same way. They had the same sort of conviction and commitment and clarity about what God wanted in all of the faces of opposition. You know, for instance, chapter 4, verse 23, we know they were... Uh, confronted by the leaders and the chief priest and the elders, right? That, that's what most of the story of chapter 4 was really about, them being arrested and tried and brought before this tribunal of Jewish leaders, and they didn't stop them. They even preached to the leaders, the chief priest and the elders, and said, you know, you keep asking by whose authority we healed this man. Let me tell you, It was Jesus 
Christ of Nazareth. Do I need to say it again? I mean, that, that's kind of how they were about it. We're not going to hide. We're not going to try to you know, say this in a way that's more acceptable to you. We're going to tell you point blank, we are doing what we do because Jesus Christ from Nazareth is the Lord. And he is the one we serve. So they face that kind of opposition. Look with me down in verse 32. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of his possession was his own, but instead they held everything in common with great power. The apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them because all those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. And then this was then distributed to each person as any had need. You know, sometimes the opposition we face is from external sources. And sometimes in the church, the opposition we face is from the inside. We're going to see this particularly when you get over into chapter 6 where you've got in the daily distribution of the food, there were some, the, the Hellenistic widows were being neglected. And so a complaint arose within the church. But at this point, none of that's happening. They are solving any sort of potential disunity or relationship problem so simply they're convicted to what they're doing and who they're supposed to be, so they just shared everything. Everything. And even the stuff that's not easily shared, like I own land back on an island of Cyprus, well then Joseph, also known as Barnabas, went and sold that land and brought the money and brought it to the apostles. And according to this reading, he's not the only one who did that. There were many who owned land, went and sold it, brought the proceeds, laid it at the apostles' feet so that everybody could have what they needed. And so, you know, here you've got verse 32 and 33. They're of one heart and soul. You've got down 34 through 37. Any sort of poverty or physical concern, they took care of that. It didn't matter what the opposition was, what it was that was going to get in the way of the gospel spreading, what it was that was going to stop them from being committed to the work God had given them to do. They just jumped in, handled it with boldness, and moved forward. I, I don't know that that describes us as much as I want it to. And I'm not talking about Edwards Lake in particular, but... I mean, how many congregations have you watched fall apart from the inside out because somebody got angry at somebody else and then they started taking sides and people started campaigning against the other side and now you got people on different sides of maybe a, a, an issue of, of doctrine or an issue of practice or the color of carpet. I mean, who really knows what it is they're upset about? And honestly, the division happened not because of the issue, because issues are easy to solve. The issue happened because of the relationship problems. The division ends up happening because somebody got angry at somebody else and didn't know how to say, I'm sorry. It happens all the time in God's people. 
Not in the early church. Not, not in Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, you've got thousands of Christians meeting together or meeting in groups. They're all there in one location. And it says they, the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind. We have a hard time saying that about groups of 50. You ever notice that? How could they accomplish that with thousands? And yet we struggle to accomplish that with hundreds. It's amazing to see what they accomplished here because they were so committed and convicted about what they were doing and what their job was. And even physical concerns. I have seen that drop into uh, congregations of God's people all across America where there are you know, people who get upset about this other person who's always asking for help and then they, they don't want to help them anymore because this is the third time they've come to ask for assistance. And so we're going to cut them off. And then that person gets upset because they get cut off. And I mean, there, there's just all sorts of squabbling that happens. Not in the early church. The early church, they just threw it all in a pot. And the apostles made sure everybody had what they needed. And we know that later on they chose responsible and godly men to distribute those funds so that everyone had what they needed. And then you move into chapter 5, you've got the story of sin trying to creep its way into the church. You know the story of Ananias and Sapphira, right? You know, there are people that are getting a name for themselves because of their generosity and their willingness to share their possession. You know, Joseph got renamed with a nickname that we know him by, Barnabas, son of encouragement. And so, hey, we know how to get a name for ourselves. So Ananias and Sapphira go and they do the same thing. They sell their property and they bring the proceeds and they lay it at the, at the apostles' feet problem is that they do it with dishonesty. They come and they say, hey, here, here's everything we made. Use it however you want. You're welcome. But the only reason they lied about it, it seems, and, and I'm kind of reading between the lines here, is because they want to be known for their generosity. The problem is they're not actually truly being generous. Nothing wrong with, with keeping some back, but they kept some back even though they claimed not to have. And so Ananias comes in and he offers this gift and Peter asks a question and he basically agrees that you know, with the dishonest answer, yes, I, I, I gave all of it. And then he says, Peter does, Ananias why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the proceeds of the land? Wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it sold, wasn't it at your disposal? Why is it that you planned this thing in your heart? You have not lied to people but to God. And when he heard this, he was struck dead. I, I find that amazing. I find it amazing that as soon as there is a hint of dishonesty and sin in the church, it is talked about and confronted. 
Now, I, I, it's amazing enough that God saw this as a fit reason to strike someone dead. And we're not going to get into all of that. I, I have some assumptions as to why I believe God handles this sin with such severity. But I do find it very telling and, and applicable to us today that it's not just, well, you know, we've heard a rumor, but, you know, it's just a rumor, so we want to keep it quiet. We don't really want to confront him and, and hurt his feelings, or we don't really want to have that conversation, so we're just going to let this one slide. It's not a big deal. He gave some of it. wasn't that generous enough. We're not going to stop any trouble. That's the kind of thing you see happening in today's church. Not Peter. <laughs> Peter's like, all right, let's have a conversation, bud. Here's what you said. Here's what you did. That's not okay. I mean, he just lays it out there. He, he doesn't let sin slide. He says, you know what, we've got to get this right. You see the same thing later on with Simon the sorcerer, do you not? That immediately they have a conversation about his sin. Immediately. And I think there should be more of that in the church. Not necessarily immediate condemnation and judgment, but immediate conversation. We should have such relationships within God's people that if you suspect me of sin, without condemning me, come to me and say, hey, here's what I've heard, here's what I've seen, help me understand. So that you can help me Avoid falling into the deep hole of sin that we sometimes create for ourselves. And so because of their conviction, because of their commitment to truth, because of their commitment to doing things God's way, Peter immediately handles the problem. You see the same thing with Sapphira when she comes in. She's complicit in the sin and she gets struck dead too. But it's interesting, as soon as she came in, three hours later, verse 7, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Tell me, Peter asked her, did you sell the land for this price? Yes, for that price, she said. Peter said, why did you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they'll carry you out. I mean, he doesn't hold back. And, and I don't think he's not holding back because he's just a vicious man. We don't get that sense from Peter. It, he's not, you know, being boldly forward about their sin because he likes to catch people in the act. He's some sort of investigator to get some sort of pleasure out of catching people and watching them get struck dead. I think Peter realizes sin has no place in God's people. And I have no, no, no hesitation whatsoever based on what we know about Peter that Ananias and Sapphira weren't the only ones he was willing to have that kind of conversation with because he wasn't going to allow sin to grow. That takes boldness, does it not? It takes courage, it takes conviction, it takes commitment to God's truth. And that's how the early church is, is exemplified. That, that's what we see here in the early church. And it's what we should see 
in today's church. For instance, what do we in today's church do when the government steps in and tells us what we can and cannot do in serving God? What do we do? I worry about that. I didn't two years ago. But today I do. You know, the worst I heard about a couple of years ago was that maybe the government was going to revoke the tax status of churches and, and just make it a little bit more financially disagreeable for churches to be set up under certain tax statuses. And then the church would have to pay property, insur- you know, property taxes and things like that that churches don't currently have to pay. And, that, and that's about the worst you ever heard. And, and, and then... If you ever wanted to have a conversation about the government stepping into the day-to-day activities of a church, it was always, well, what if some foreign country comes in and takes over our country and, you know, the, the Islam is now the state religion and we're now, you know, and, and we all looked at those scenarios and goes, ah, that's so far-fetched. That's not something we'll ever have to worry about. And Lord willing, that's true. But we've now experienced in the past year that government, our government, has stepped in and said, I, I think for what they believe were legitimate reasons, and whether you believe they were legitimate or not, that is up to you. I'm not wanting to get into that debate. But did the government step in and say, churches can do this and can't do that? They have. And whether you agree with the reason this time or not, what about the next time? We are now in a real world where the government can step in and tell us what we can and can't do. And I think we as Christians need to sit down and figure out what do we do? What do we do next time that happens? How do we handle it? Or what about, maybe it's not government stepping in, but other churches have come and they, they've blacklisted Edwards Lake because of something we've decided to do that's different than the way they do it? Do we let the, the opinion of other groups of people affect the way we make our decisions here? Because I see that happen in a lot of churches. Where churches will sit down and they'll be making decisions and they'll go, well, but if we do that, then such and such group won't come to our gospel meetings anymore. <gasps> Or such and such group is going to think that we've left the faith. Does that matter? Does it matter when another group of people think about you? We've got to learn to decide to just press on and do what is boldly serving God, despite whatever interference tries to get in the way. What do we do when disunity or personality conflicts, or personal relationships interfere with God's work. That's a very real reality in many churches. Where somebody is it, 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 just determined to stir up trouble. Uh, they, it might be in a very public way where, you know, they just interrupt Bible class after Bible class after Bible class trying to preach some sort of agenda from the pews. Have you ever seen that happen? How do you handle that? 
How, you know, do, do we let them speak their mind and then we'll just handle it later because we don't want to publicly embarrass anybody? Or do we have a good conversation about truth? And I'm not saying we, we shut people down. I've been in other places where uh, certain people have gained a reputation for themselves as being argumentative. So they'll raise their hand and they'll just get ignored like they are invisible and they are never allowed to speak in a Bible class. I, I don't think that's good either. But what do you do when difficult personalities try to step in and stir up trouble? When squabbles arise, when people get their feelings hurt because they're sensitive, and you get people going, well, they're just being too sensitive. They just need to toughen up. Is that the right response? What do you do when the entitled feels like they should have their way or when the old guard is being so staunch about what they believe they're not even willing to listen? That's a battle happening in a lot of congregations. What do you do when the liberals are arguing with the antis? How do you handle those disagreements? Churches constantly deal with conflicts of disunity. How do you get through those so that you may be described like the church here in verse 32, they, that we are of one heart and mind? I think it's worth thinking that through. We have to press on despite the distractions. What do we do when physical concerns prevent us from being active for God? When we have to uh, take care of the needs and, and constantly be giving to those who are less fortunate. When, you know, how do we let the physical needs of the saved, uh, our own group, when, when we don't have needs, what do you do at that point? What do you do with benevolence money if it's never spent? You know, during a pandemic, we've experienced that recently, right? How do you handle physical needs and make sure that you're properly caring for your flock while at the same time not neglecting the spiritual needs? That was the real battle and question we faced in 2020. Because I'm not going to argue that there weren't physical needs or that, that were very prevalent and they needed to be talked about. But I have a problem when we are more concerned about physical needs and less concerned about spiritual ones. And that when taking care of physical needs to the absence of taking care of spiritual needs seems like a good idea. You look back in John chapter 3, it's interesting to me. Peter and John, we don't have any money to give you, but what we do have we'll give to you. They heal him, they take care of physical need, but then what do you see happen? They carry on to bring him to the Lord. He goes with them to the temple, praising God. This is a very real scenario that we got to start thinking about. There are things coming down the pipeline that I'm concerned we are going to be entirely unprepared for because we haven't had the conversations yet. You know, what do you do about somebody who 
has an alternative lifestyle but still believes in God and wants to worship with you? How do you handle that? How do you handle somebody who has made bad choices uh, regarding uh, gender choices and such and now they're wanting to come to the Lord? How do you handle those awkward situations and conversations? How do you put their spiritual needs before their physical needs to make sure that you are caring for their soul? We need to figure that out. We've got to learn to press on despite the circumstances that we're going to face. You know, what do we do when sin creeps in to God's people? Different groups through the years I have watched handle this in very different ways. And, and I will be the first to admit every situation is different and needs to be treated differently. There is not a blanket method for handling sin. Elders who try to do it that way always fail to do it well. You know, well, we're gonna, we got this method that as soon as we find out, we confront, and as soon as we confront, then we write them a letter, and we make sure that everything's documented, and then if they don't respond within so many days, we write them another letter, and then if they still haven't responded within two months, we write them a third letter and know that we disfellowship from, and then we get up and we read that letter upon mailing it to the congregation. I haven't been here long enough to know how it gets handled here or how it has been handled here in the past, so that is not a statement against or for Edwards Lake, I don't know here. Luckily, since I've been here, we've been at a, in a pretty peaceful situation. It, it, it's been wonderful. Every situation's different. But every sin must be handled. All of them. There is no exception to that rule, and that is not to preserve the reputation of the congregation as I have seen it happen in many places. It is to preserve the outcome and destiny of that person's soul. That has to be our only concern. But if we do that, if we will truly care about them, we'll truly press on despite those obstacles, we do well. The answer is in every case, though, we press on. And what I have seen over the years in different places where I have been is how often the, the obstacles or the distractions or the interference or the sin or the circumstances or whatever it is just stops God's people in their track. And what I'm telling you right now is we cannot be God's people and be still can't. God's people are an active, working people. Dare I steal from my sermon this morning, we are doers if we belong to God. So we have to learn to press on despite the interference, despite the distractions, despite the circumstances, despite the obstacles that are going to arise, because God's work is too important to be stopped. And at the risk of being redundant, I want to go back and read the prayer that these people prayed when Peter and John got out of jail. Back in chapter 4, I want to start reading there in verse 24 at the beginning of their prayer. 
Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats. Or maybe we could add to it, consider the interference or the distractions or the circumstances or the obstacles we face. Consider it all. And grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand for healings and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. How I hope our prayer is the same. Despite whatever is going to arise, and there will be things that arise, and there are things that we need to think through and things that we need to consider, despite all of it, may our prayer be that God give us the boldness to speak his word to live it out and to be whom he has called us to be it, his word his work his church it's way more important than our personality conflicts it's way more important than whatever sin it is that we've decided to pursue his work is more important than our, our finances. His work is more important. And dare I say, his work is more important than our compliance. His work is more important than our agreement with the government. His work is more important than any pandemic. His work is too important to be stopped. And we can't let anything interfere with what it is that God has called us to do. So I encourage us to think through some of these things. Maybe on our own, maybe together. But let's decide how it is that we can do more unhindered, consistent work for God's kingdom. Despite whatever arises. If you're not a child of God, tonight's a good night to become one. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you're not, there are some things interfering that are obstacles that are stopping you, and I'm asking you to deal with them. Maybe your obstacle to becoming a child of God is it, it, you're just not sure you believe all of that. Then let's have a conversation. Let's learn. Maybe your obstacle is uh, you're, you're, just, you're not ready, but you've got some things you haven't given up in your life yet. Well, that, that is part of repentance, but there's also a lot of help that comes from belonging to Jesus. And sometimes we put off obeying Christ in the pursuit of perfection when it is obeying Christ that brings us perfection. Whatever your obstacle is, let's deal with it. 
And for those of us, many of us, who have already belonged to Christ for years, I encourage you to do some introspection this week. Think about it. Have you let the circumstances of life interfere with you doing all you know you should be doing? If so, repent and do better. Because God's work is too important for us to stand around and let it be undone. God is counting on us to step up and do the things that he has called us to do. May we be of one heart and mind, just like the early church, and bold as can be as we get out there and do the things God has called us to do. Whether you need the invitation to get your life right by having your sins washed away in baptism or whether you need maybe the prayers of the saints here, we encourage you to come forward. Let us know how we can help you as we stand and sing this song. Hosanna, you're my king. Thanks for listening and studying God's word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.